You're listening to the On The Go with VAO News Podcast, covering the months of December 2016 and January 2017. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. VAO's podcast consolidates and summarizes the key takeaways from the most important acquisition-related policies, guidance, regulatory changes, and more. Thanks for tuning in today. Coming to you from the VAO team, I'm Brittany Shapiro. This month, we have Gloria Freisen, Marshall Hefner, Jennifer Chaddock, and Julie LeBlanc to deliver our VAO team review of key acquisition developments. Take it away, Julie. There is lots to cover today, so let's get to it. Jennifer, it was an interesting time for lawmakers during this time period we're reviewing, with one administration preparing to head out and another one coming in. Will you get us started with a look at what went down? Certainly. Since we covered December legislative developments in our Inside the 114th Congress webinar last month, we will jump right into January happenings. The new Congress started off the session by bringing back an old rule that Congress last used in 1983. The Holman Rule allows individual members to propose amendments to appropriations bills. These amendments could cut specific federal programs, slash federal salaries to as low as $1, or eliminate positions altogether. Holman Rule supporters say the measure would promote increased government accountability. However, opponents are concerned lawmakers could use it unfairly Uh, and blame federal employees for overall government performance issues, or to make short-sighted and ideologically driven changes to civil service. Now, for a rarity, some levity from Congress. Senator Jeff Flake recently released his second annual report called Wastebook Pokemon Go, documenting over $5 billion worth of what he sees as outrageous federal spending. Science agencies had to bear or maybe pig the brunt of the 50 documented cases including the National Institutes of Health spending almost $1 million to study the evolution of monkey drool, the National Science Foundation funding scientists to prove girls are more likely to play with Barbie dolls than boys, and NIH doling out $5 million in grants to discover that the fraternity brothers drink, smoke, and generally party more than any other college students. Lots of stuff has been happening that directly affects you, our clients. So let's review some of what's happening to both your wallets and daily job environment. On December 12th, President Barack Obama gave a parting gift to the federal civilian workforce when he upped his November proposal pay rate of 1.6% to 2.1%. While he mentioned a reconsideration of current and projected economic conditions, the real driver was matching the FY 2017 National Defense Authorization Act provisions that conferred a 2.1% raise for military personnel. Tony Reardon, National President of the National Treasury Employees Union, hailed the move as recognition of how important civilian workers are to the nation's well-being. On December 27th, President Obama made the raise official via executive order and the Office of Personnel Management put out a memo providing further guidance regarding topics such as pay rates, special pay rates, and special pay caps. While not officially in action from the administration, the Washington Post reported that federal hiring was way up between Election Day and the beginning of the new administration. The Post noted there were upwards of 8,000 more positions posted on USAjobs.gov in November and December this year, compared to the same time last year. This was likely prompted in part by a campaign trail promised by then-President-elect to put a halt to any expansion of the federal workforce. On January 24th, the government-wide hiring freeze became official. As it stands now, no new positions may be created, and agencies are not allowed to use contractors to get around the order. However, there are exemptions the military and positions necessary for national or public security among them. Office of Personnel Management guidance lists 18 specific exemptions, such as seasonal and central intelligence agency employees, as well as provides a process for asking it for further non-specific exemptions for critical situations. 
the Department of Veterans Affairs and Defense have also put out their own guidance with more exemptions. With the new administration coming into place, there have been quite a few notable federal personnel shakeups. The first U.S. Chief Information Security Officer, retired Brigadier General Gregory Tuhill, and Chief Information Officer Tony Scott both stepped down, and there's been no word on whether the vacancies will be filled. Department of Defense Chief Information Officer Terry Halverson retires February 28th. The category team at the General Services Administration's Office of Information Technology hired two new executives, Keith Nakasone as Deputy Assistant Commissioner for Acquisition and Jose Arrieta as Director of, for the Office of IT Schedule Contract Operations. And the first administrator for the U.S. Digital Service, Mikey Dickerson, will step down from his politically appointed position. He'll be replaced by Director of Engineering, Matt Cup. The Partnership for Public Service has released its annual list of best places to work in the federal government. According to the list, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration ranks highest for the fifth year in a row among large agencies. Rounding out the top five for large-size agencies is the Department of Commerce, the Intelligence Community overall, the State Department, and the Department of Health and Human Services. For mid-size agencies, the top five are the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the Peace Corps, which ties with the Government Accountability Office, Federal Energy Regulation Commission, and the Federal Trade Commission. In addition to the rankings, the report says government-wide federal employee engagement increased by 1.3 points, and the rankings showed employees' belief in top leadership also increased by 1.4 points. The Department of Defense teams representing the best and brightest of acquisition were also given some recognition with the Department's Should Cost and Innovation Award. The 2016 Packard Award, DOD's highest acquisition team honor, went to three teams. The Project Manager Maneuver Ammunition Systems Team, which developed an acquisition strategy and rapid delivery of ammunition that dramatically reduced delivery time. The Next Generation Jammer Increment One Team, which realized $2.4 million in cost savings and $1.2 million in cost avoidance, and the U.S. Special Operations Command Acquisition Rapid Response Light Tactical Vehicle Team, which leveraged the commercial marketplace, existing supply chains, and global distribution networks to complete certification, testing, assessments, and fielding activities in mere months instead of years. The 2016 Should Cost and Innovation Award went to the Joint Program Office light, Joint Light Tactical Vehicles Team for implementing should cost initiatives. By using competitive prototyping, the team and their industry partners were better able to make cost-informed design decisions expected to save as much as $2.2 billion in life cycle sustainment costs. We also saw a number of significant policy releases in December and January. Probably the one that will be of widest interest is one from the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, which issued its third Mythbuster memo on January 5th, noting that a lot, a lot of misconceptions may be discouraging agencies from taking full advantage of debriefings. Acting Administrator Leslie Field outlined eight myths and real facts, and we'll just highlight three of them here. The first one is, companies do not really use the information provided in a debriefing to improve their work. Well, that's wrong. The fact is, industry has indicated that offerers are less likely to protest when they understand their weaknesses and have clarity on the source selection outcome. Secondly, debriefings always lead to protest. Well, that's wrong, too. The fact is, an effective debriefing process can greatly reduce the frequency of protests, as protests are often driven by a desire to obtain additional information that could be available via a proper debriefing. And finally, government should not spend time debriefing the winning offerer. Well, that's a myth. The fact is, an effective debriefing can provide short and long-term benefits for contracting officials and both the successful and unsuccessful offerers. The memo also included best practices developed by agencies such as the National Aeronautics and Space Administration and the Department of Treasury, as well as Homeland Security and Defense. It also suggested agencies considering or establishing or adopting a debriefing guide and to post it to share with other agencies by March 1st. The Office of Management and Budget issued a memo on January 3rd setting policy for federal agencies to prepare for and respond to 
a breach of personally identifiable information, or PII. While not directed completely at acquisition, the memo did spell out terms regarding PII that should be included in contracts going forward. For example, requiring contractors and or subcontractors to encrypt PII, report breaches to federal agencies as soon as possible, and receive regular training. Terms directed at agencies include being able to inspect for compliance and assuring contractors and subcontractors that reporting of a breach shall not, it by itself, be interpreted as evidence that they failed to provide adequate PII safeguards. The FAR Council, in coordination with OMB, was charged with creating appropriate contract clauses and regulatory coverage to address contractor requirements for breach response in the federal acquisition regulation. All agencies must update their breach response plans and send them to OMB by July 2nd. One quick small business update on uh, January 11th. Uh, OMB issued another extension to the federal government's policy of providing accelerated payments to small business contractors, this time until December 31st, 2017. So keep that money moving fast to your small vendors. On January 4th, the Department of Treasury set the prompt payment interest rate at 2.5% per annum for the next six months. Remember that if you're late in paying and incur a penalty, you'll need to calculate the amount using the interest rate that was in effect at the time you incurred the obligation to pay. The Department of Energy issued a policy slash on December 28th reminding procurement directors and contracting officers of the January 1st effective date for the Paycheck Transparency provisions of the Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces final rule and the Establishing Paid Sick Leave for Federal Contractors final rule. Despite a court injunction blocking many aspects of the Fair Pay rule, contracting officers still have to insert the Paycheck Transparency Clause in solicitations that exceed $500,000. However, we should note Congress is currently considering a resolution to completely rescind the Fair Pay rule. For sick leave, Contracting officers need to include the clause, paid sick leave under Executive Order 13706 in new solicitations, and for modifications that are themselves or together total six months or more. The clause needs to go in there, too. COs are strongly encouraged to put the clause in existing indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts, if that six-month period will apply, or if the amount of remaining work or number of orders expected is substantial. Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy Director Claire Grady released guidance and a class deviation on and effective December 1st. We'll start with the guidance, which reinforces existing policy in the Defense Federal Acquisition Regulation Supplement, requiring contracting officers to use DOD-weighted guidelines for evaluating performance and contract type risk. The guidelines point out that the contractor's value-added activities and its actions influence the contract outcome, and that contracting officers should consider the impact of the prime contractor's cost control efforts and the risk the contractor assumes in performing specific contract actions. Therefore, profit or fee should fairly reflect the contractor's degree of risk in fulfilling contract obligations. Moving on to the deviation, this instructs contracting officers to apply a cost principle as a prerequisite to determining the allowability of annual independent research and development, or IR&D, costs, or IR&D projects initiated in the contractor's fiscal year 2017. The contractor should first have a technical exchange with DOD during the fiscal year to gain and apply feedback on project plans and goals and also document set exchange on the online input form for IR&D projects reported to the Defense Technical Information Center. With this class deviation, there is a phase-in period to develop processes and procedures for required IR&D technical exchanges. We saw a good bit of news on various initiatives that saved money. Some of these you might be able to replicate at your agency. The Equipment Exchange Initiative in July 2014 helped the Marine Corps Systems Command Combat Support Systems achieve over $20 million in cost avoidance. Through this initiative, promoted by the General Services Administration and Defense Logistics Agency, the Marine Corps can exchange and sell equipment while bypassing the two-year acquisition process for purchasing new items. 
The Marine Corps can then apply the exchange allowance or proceeds to the acquisition of replacement property under the GSA Exchange Sale Authority. With the exchange, Marines get modernized equipment delivered to them more quickly. So far, there have been 11 exchanges for over 2,000 items, including medical and dental supplies, combat engineer equipment, and fuel pumps. Building consolidations have been a proven source of cost savings and are also on an upward trend throughout the government. Lawmakers recently flagged one specific instance that could save big bucks. A December report from the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee showed that the Department of Homeland Security's headquarters consolidation at the St. Elizabeth's West Campus could have huge savings potential for taxpayers to the tune of $1.2 billion over 30 years. The project is expected to also support DHS's coordinated national security efforts. The committee urged that the new administration make the completion of DHS's headquarters consolidation project a high priority to save the taxpayers the full $1.2 billion. According to an annual summary, the Government Accountability Office contributed $63.4 billion in financial benefits for the federal government in fiscal year 2016. GAO reported an overall return of roughly $112 for every $1 invested in it. It also issued 697 reports, made 2,071 new recommendations, and testified 119 times before 69 congressional committees or subcommittees. GAO contributions included increased use of strategic sourcing to reduce procurement costs by $3.6 billion at the Department of Veterans Affairs, and use of better cost estimates to bulk fuel operation and maintenance budget to achieve $2.3 billion in savings for the Department of Defense. In total, there's the potential for the new administration to make over $1.1 trillion in sustainable cost reductions, $500 billion in supply chains and acquisition in particular, according to a technology CEO council report. By applying cognitive and analytics capabilities, agencies can gain insight into complex procurement rules that individuals or computing models just cannot provide. These tools can capture seemingly unrelated data from internal and external sources that can improve market intelligence for acquisition professionals. The report also commends the government's cost-saving efforts through category management, but suggests that its success and maturity in its implementation has been unbalanced. It recommends expanding the General Services Administration's Federal Strategic Sourcing Initiative and category management and incorporating standard platforms to coordinate procurement of common information technology and support services. Enhanced category management could cut supply chain costs 10 to 20 percent. Now we'll move from actions that are saving money to actions that are spurring innovation. To modernize systems without the hefty upfront costs, United Shared Services Management Office at the General Services Administration has devised a 10-year plan to shift administration, financial, and human resources systems to a software-as-a-service or subscription model. USSM's plan involves partnering the Shared Government Service Board, providers, and customers to standardize business requirements, processes, and capabilities to reduce expensive customizations and realize economies of scale enable subscription technology services like software as a service and platform as a service so the government only pays for what it uses and updates will be less costly. It also plans to leverage economies of skill such as workers and human resources, accounting and acquisition so agencies can use available resources to add value back to their missions and explore new funding models for investments and migrations through private sector capital and innovation. The Air Force's new Space Accelerator project partners with the nonprofit National Security Technology Accelerator and Lightspeed Innovation to mentor 10 to 20 aerospace startup firms that will develop commercial-based solutions for space situational awareness, like space traffic management or monitoring. Through the mentorship program, these startups can come familiar with the Department of Defense culture and its challenges, which they will then be tasked to tackle with the Air Force funding and a contract vehicle for prototypes and new technology that addresses those challenges. This program is meant to supplement initiatives like the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, DIAC, and the Army's Rapid Capabilities Office. Applications for the program closed in late December. 
and it launched in January. Dias has explained to agencies that they can create and benefit from, quote, innovative contracting vehicles. A free online commercial solutions opening guidebook addressed commercial solutions openings, CSOs for short, which Diax touts is fast with money and time savings. In fact, CSOs usually take no more than 59 days from solution to prototype delivery, practically the speed of light. Essentially, the basic CSO process involves soliciting private sector technology developers who could benefit U.S. military operations, receiving developers and proposals, awarding other transactions agreements which are more flexible than, but similar to, traditional contracts, and finally, fast-tracking prototypes of the new technologies to the defense units that will deploy them. Still no A grade for any agencies following the third round of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee's Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act, or FITARA, scorecards. The scorecards rate agencies' progress in areas such as data center consolidation, IT portfolio savings, incremental development, and risk assessment transparency. Twelve agencies improved from the previous scorecard, but 11 did not, five of whom received a D. The Departments of Commerce, Interior, and Veterans Affairs, the Social Security Administration, Environmental Protection Agency, and General Services Administration all earned top marks with a B plus. GSA recently came out with a guide on enterprise infrastructure solutions post-award related processes called the EIS Management and Operations Handbook. EIS is GSA's planned 15-year, $50 billion telecommunications contract, which will replace networks. The handbook offers an overview of processes such as ordering, task order administration, billing, service level agreement management, and disputes. GSA has also released a cloud adoption guide called Best Business Practices for USG Cloud Adoption in December that touches on the cultural and organizational changes that need to happen to implement cloud computing. Specifically, it gives an overview of business practices for federal agencies to consider when preparing for migration to the cloud, like using performance-based acquisition and modular contracting. This guide also gives actionable guidance for the planning and solicitation of products or services through a systems integrator into the environment hosted by a cloud service provider. The guide is divided into sections including, what is this cloud computing stuff? How do I procure services for the cloud? Estimating the pay-as-you-go pricing. And my application has been migrated to the cloud. Now what? Ah, I like those chapter names. Well, we have three new resources from the mobile services category team that will help agencies to create a progressive mobile plan that will allow employees to work securely from any device anywhere. The Mobile Services Roadmap, Mobile Device Procurement and Management Guidance, and Mobile Services Brokerage Model Feasibility Study, Project and Implementation Plan will be available through the GSA Acquisition Gateway. However, with the ever-increasing mobile device use in the federal workforce, the government still needs to develop policy to preserve any text messages related to government business as they are considered to be public records. Everyone from the National Aeronautics and Space Administration to the Internal Revenue Service to the Department of Defense has been hosting prize competitions. We've seen Hack the Pentagon, Hack the Army, the IRS Bug Bounty, and NASA's Space Poop Challenge, among others. There have been a number of administration actions aimed at supporting this growing trend of agencies using prize competition, so it's proven to be a cost-saving way to spur technological innovation and when used for cybersecurity, to identify vulnerabilities in information network. Now, everybody likes a good challenge, but you should like this challenge even better. As part of this effort to use prize competitions to help agencies meet their mission requirements, the General Services Administration created challenge.gov back in 2010. And recently, GSA issued a new challenges and prizes toolkit on the site. The toolkit will act as a five-step guide for federal leaders to host challenges at their own agencies. The guided toolkit will take agencies through the initial preparation and goal setting to reaching awards and the transition process. Also, it will offer best practices, a breakdown of challenge types, 
and advice on documentation, follow-up, civic engagement and scaling, and managing a solution through partnerships, procurement, or in-house maintenance. The Department of Defense has seen particular success with these prize competitions and crowdsourcing challenges, so much so that in late December, the agency's recent Operational Challenges Crowdsourcing Initiative received over 100 innovative idea submissions. Two of those ideas and a few others are being considered for implementation by DOD officials. DOD's initiative inspired ideas from all over. The proposers ranged from industry to academia and think tanks. The two top proposal papers, one on changing investment priorities and the other on modernizing amphibious assault, have been received by the Pentagon and sent through to related teams. The other chosen proposals will be connected with DOD officials through department workshops and training seminars that will help to strengthen their ideas. Then we have the results from the Army's Hack the Army Bug Bounty Prize competition. The Army received 416 bug reports from 371 hackers. 118 of those reports were actionable vulnerabilities. The program cost the Army roughly $100,000 in prize money for participants. And the most significant vulnerability found was a chain of weaknesses that allows someone to access a public-facing Army website and then move to a credential-protected DOD internal site through an open proxy. Despite the success of this bug bounty prize competition, it may be the last. A new DOD vulnerability disclosure policy allows hackers to legally have sites in order to report bugs. In addition to crowdsourced prize competitions, DOD has been improving its technology through its Defense Digital Service initiatives. The Army's digital service will start by modernizing the recruitment process and mitigate cyber vulnerabilities on Army websites, while the Air Force Digital Service's main task will be to troubleshoot software. The Air Force saw digital services success previously with the reconfiguration of the next generation operational control system that will manage DOD's global positioning system satellites. Federal regulations have gone mobile with a new smartphone app, RegInfo Mobile. The Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs launched the app so the public could have on-the-go access to federal regulatory information and agency rulemaking as part of a larger White House effort to increase the accessibility of federal sites on smartphones and tablets. Basically, the RegInfo Mobile app will be the mobile companion of the RegInfo.gov website. Through the app, iPhone and Android users can browse current and past rulemaking and public meeting logs, view the status of federal info collection requests, and interact with a timeline to visualize the regulation process. An interagency effort between the Defense Logistics Agency and Defense Health Agency to promote bulk purchasing power through an electronic catalog will achieve $30 million in savings for the military medical community. ECAT is an online system for customers to browse, compare, and order pharmaceutical, dental, laboratory, and commercial medical and surgical equipment. In a team effort, DHA acts as a consolidated customer to buy medical material in bulk, and DLA negotiates best prices. ECAT is expected to yield an additional $30 million in savings into fiscal year 2019. The National Institute of Standards and Technology released an updated draft to its cybersecurity framework that incorporates industry comments received since 2014. Changes in the framework for improving critical infrastructure security, draft version 1.1, include a standard vocabulary for supply chain risk management and clarifying certain terms, an expanded explanation for using the framework for supply chain risk management purposes, a new section on cybersecurity measurement, and all of the comments on those updated drafts are due by April 10th. NIST also released a guide entitled Guide for Cybersecurity Event Recovery to help agencies prepare for recovery from a cybersecurity breach. The guide urges agencies to develop a complete inventory of information technology assets, create communication and contingency plans, and identify key staff members equipped to develop detailed recovery plans. Now it's time for Judge Judy, or at least for the legal wrangling recap portion of our December-January review. The Government Accountability Office put out its annual report on bid protests. 
to Congress on December 15th. The 6% rise in overall bid protests from fiscal year 2015 wasn't really the big story, and almost 23% spike in sustained protests was. This marks the highest rate since the 27% rise in fiscal year 2007. And let us not forget, GIO does not render a decision on many protests due to agencies voluntarily taking corrective actions, and those numbers are accounted for here. The top reasons for sustained protests included unreasonable technical evaluation, unreasonable past performance evaluation, unreasonable cost or price evaluation, and flawed selection decisions. If there is a bright side for agencies, fiscal year 2016 marks the first time in at least five years that they adhered to every GAO recommendation. Early in 2016, the Supreme Court ruled on the long-running case between Kingdomware Technologies and the Department of Veterans Affairs, ruling that VA must apply the rule of two. As a quick review here, the rule of two requires VA to determine whether there are two or more capable veteran-owned small businesses on federal supply schedule and multiple award schedule contracts under the simplified acquisition threshold and set aside contracts that qualify under these terms. The Small Business Administration, however, has offered up its own interpretation, saying that the ruling should apply to all task and delivery orders under the SAP if the request for proposals comes under GSA schedules. SBA argues that since the court determined task or delivery orders under multiple award contracts should be considered contracts under the VA Act, then the same rule should apply under the Small Business Act. GSA and the Office of Federal Procurement Policy argue that the ruling was specific to VA. So the question going forward is whether GSA and OFPP will continue to disagree with SBA or move to change the FAR to SBA's interpretation. Well now, a protest hit one of the major government-wide acquisition contracts, Information Technology Enterprise Solutions II Services, or the ITIS 2S, Incumbent NCI Information Systems protested an IT Services Task Order Award from the Department of the Interior to HP Enterprises Services, or HPES, on the basis of unmitigated impaired objectivity, conflict of interest, and determination of price reasonableness. Regarding the OCI issue, the protest noted HPES is a wholly owned subsidiary of Hewlett Packard Enterprise and that much of the existing IT infrastructure it would service on the task order is manufactured and supplied by Hewlett Packard Enterprise, which creates an obvious conflict of interest on countless tasks. The contracting officer identified this potential OCI from the get-go and had created a general mitigation plan. However, GAO felt the plan was too generalized and did not effectively deal with the impaired objectivity OCI. The watchdog also noted DOI did not have documentation showing it meaningfully considered the issue or HPES's proposed mitigation measures. As far as price reasonableness, GAO found that Department of Interior's analysis did not provide logical support to conclude that HPES's low price was compatible with its technical approach. GAO sustained both lines of protest and called for new DOI consideration and documentation of its decision-making on HPES's potential OCI and mitigation plan, as well as a new price realism analysis. The lesson here is that with OCI and personal conflicts of interest in federal government garnering a lot of mainstream attention these days, we really must do all we can to avoid even the appearance of it. The U.S. Court of Federal Claims, or COFC, sustained in part a post-award bid protest against the Department of Veterans Affairs regarding a contract for medical cylinder gases. While Progressive Industries Incorporated made numerous allegations, COFC was particularly moved by the charge of inconsistent treatment of offers when it established the competitive range and the granting of a deadline extension only to one offer for the submission of its revised proposal. Regarding the first issue, a VA contract specialist had emailed offer Irish Oxygen Company numerous times after its original bid submission 
asking for more information on matters such as the technical portion, past performance, updated pricing for an option year, and if the proposal addressed all of the locations of performance. Not only did COFC feel these exchanges gave Irish an unfair advantage in allowing untimely and significant modifications to the technical and cost elements of its proposal, it's also asserted that holding these exchanges before making a competitive range determination was a violation of the solicitation. VA's procurement rules and Federal Acquisition Regulations 15.306 and 15.308. For the other issue, VA had granted a 19-hour bid submittal extension to another unnamed offeror, giving it more time than all the other bidders to prepare its proposal. COFC determined these unequal treatments of offerors prejudiced progressive, and it granted the protesters' motion for judgment on administrative records in part and request for injunction relief in part. The lesson here is while we want to be nice and helpful and don't want to see bidders make critical mistakes and or miss deadlines, what we do for one, we must do for all. Very true. A win for the Department of Defense as the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit decided that Sikorsky Aviation Corporation will not have to reveal redacted parts of its subcontracting plan. The initial 2014 judgment in the lower court ruled in favor of the American Small Business League, deciding that DOD must fully release Sikorsky's data on subcontracting plans that was submitted under the agency's long-held comprehensive subcontracting plan test program. The appeals court found that, contrary to the lower court's ruling, the redacted information in Sikorsky's plans contained trade secrets or proprietary or confidential financial information. Disclosing such information would create a competitive disadvantage for Sikorsky in addition to this information's protection under the Freedom of Information Act. ASBL argues that the court's decision allows DOD to conceal its disproportionate use of large versus small contractors in the CSPTP, and it plans to appeal the appeals decision. The General Services Administration is now full steam ahead on the $50 billion Alliant 2 IT contract vehicle, both with open and small business halves. On January 11th, the Government Accountability Office denied a collective protest from a handful of unsuccessful bidders. GAO's main responses were, the protesters' arguments did not establish the GSA source selection process or price evaluation methods were improper, as the Federal Acquisition Regulation allows agencies to find the best value via any one or combination of source selection approaches, and the GSA's price evaluation determines fairness and reasonableness of multiple aspects of offerors' proposed rates. It also upheld the assigning of certain points to small businesses, particularly assigning the same number of risk assessment points to both an other-than-small business and a small business with other with uh, subcontractors who have not all previously worked together as a team. Noting the risk is left for the small business to rely on subcontractors that it has worked with at some point in the past versus a newly formed joint venture or vendor with which the prime contractor has no performance history, the agency believes the protesters did not demonstrate GSA acted unreasonably or that the agency is improperly giving differential treatment to offerors. GSA has taken steps to encourage competition at the task order level so that limiting the number of Alliant awardees to 60 will not result in an issue. And now the Department of Homeland Security's $1.54 billion Flexible Agile Support for the Homeland, or FLASH, I like that for an acronym, like a purchase agreement promoting agile software development has stalled due to at least eight protests from the 101 unsuccessful bidders for the 13 awards. DHS Chief Procurement Officer Soraya Correa it's not surprised to see protests, considering it is an experimental pilot program. She encouraged other agencies not to be afraid of trying new approaches out of concerns of facing similar challenges, and indicated she hopes to learn from 18X experience dealing with the protest on its agile BPA to resolve the challenge and move forward, and as close to a flash as possible. So the lesson here is, if you want to make a better procurement omelet, don't be afraid to of a few broken protest eggs. In a departure from some of our usual protest subjects, 
The Government Accountability Office sustained the protest, alleging the Department of the Interior's Bureau of Indian Affairs, or BIA, improperly limited competition for a streamlined acquisition contract by failing to publicize the solicitation properly. Without a requirement to post the solicitation electronically, the contracting officer emailed three Indian Small Business Economic Enterprises and placed the solicitation in a publicly accessible binder in the contracting office. However, this was on a Saturday when the building was locked and special arrangements were needed to enter. Responses were due on the following Monday, and by that time, two of the three emailed firms had responded, and BIA chose the low bidder. When Blue Horse Corporation learned of the request for quotation a week later, it protested that BIA did not adhere to the non-electronically posted streamlined acquisitions requirements for solicitations to be available at a public location in the contracting office for at least 10 days, and for the office to contact at least three adequate sources. It pointed out that one of BIA's contacts was to a supplier that was not reasonably able to fulfill the contract requirements. GIO sustained Blue Horse's arguments and noted that BIA could have posted the procurement in a manner allowing Blue Horse to respond, or it could have contacted the company directly. It recommended the agency re-solicit the requirements consistent with the obligation to seek maximum practicable competition and reimburse Blue Horse's reasonable cost. The lesson here is that while streamlined acquisitions have less stringent publicizing requirements, agencies still must make every effort to promote competition to the maximum extent practicable. Turning away from protests, we look at the Department of Labor discrimination case against Oracle in which the agency wants to cancel all federal contracts and subcontracts belonging to the company and its subsidiaries. Additionally, it wants to bar future contracts from Oracle, um, make changes to satisfaction of the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, or OFCCP. An OFCCP compliance review of the firm's equal employment opportunity practices turned up some potential issues and the company would not satisfy routine requests for employment data and records. Two key allegations here are that white male employees receive higher wages than their female and Asian or African American counterparts at Oracle San Francisco headquarters, and that the company discriminates against non-Asians due to multiple instances of preferential recruiting and hiring toward Asians for development and technical roles. Oracle strongly used these allegations. Now let's move on to our review of the top changes in acquisition regulations. The Department of Defense has continued to delay implementation of a rule that would direct contractors to talk about their independent research and development projects with a knowledgeable DOD person before they begin doing work. Uh, we did mention this earlier in the presentation. Uh, the agency is seeking to make the process easier and less burdensome for industry, which has done a lot of complaining about the regulations. DOD has yet to specify a new effective date. On December 6, the Department of Defense, General Services Administration, and National Aeronautics and Space Administration moved forward in a multi-year effort by proposing to amend the Federal Acquisition Regulation to implement a provision from the Small Business Jobs Act of 2010 pertaining to small business set-asides on multiple award contracts. If finalized, the rule would establish government-wide policy for setting aside part or parts of the requirement for small businesses, reserving one or more contract awards for small business concerns under full and open multiple award procurement, and setting aside orders placed against multiple award contracts, notwithstanding current federal fair opportunity requirements. It also clarified agencies and small business contractors' responsibilities with respect to performance of work requirements. The proposed rule builds on an interim rule from 2011 with additional guidance based on a 2013 Small Business Administration rule. Comments on the proposed rule were due earlier this week. On December 15th, with Federal Acquisition Circular 2005-93, the Department of Defense General Services Administration 
and National Aeronautics and Space Administration amended the federal acquisition regulation to issue an injunction against the August final rule implementing the 2014 Fair Pay and Safe Workplaces Executive Order. As a refresher, the executive order's requirements include that contracting officers consider a contractor's compliance with certain federal and state labor laws as part of the determination of contractor responsibility that must be undertaken before award of a contract. After a federal judge issued an injunction in October against implementing the executive order, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy, Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy, GSA, and NASA had issued a memo stipulating minimum actions agencies should take in response. Obviously, the agencies felt a foreign injunction was necessary. Once again, we're still waiting to see what's going to happen with this executive order. Lawmakers have moved to strike it down, painting it as unfair blacklisting of potential vendors. Also, FAC 2005-93 implemented an executive order and resulting Department of Labor final rule, establishing at least one hour of contractor sick leave for every 30 hours work and other associated provisions. The rule applies to solicitations issued after January 1st and their resultant contracts. For existing contracts, contracting officers are told to include the sick leave clause in bilateral modifications extending the contract when such modifications are individually or cumulatively longer than six months, and they're strongly encouraged to include the clause in existing indefinite delivery indefinite quantity contracts if the remaining ordering period extends at least six months and the amount of remaining work or number of orders expected is substantial. On December 20th, two final rules were issued with FAC 2005-94. The first rule requires contractors to notify the contracting officer in writing if it pays a reduced price to a small business contract subcontractor or if its payment to a small business subcontractor is more than 90 days past due. Further, contracting officers need to record the identity of contractors with a history of late or reduced payments to small business subcontractors in the Federal Awardee Performance and Integrity System. The second rule requires contractors to identify employees who handle personally identifiable information, or PII, or have access to a system of records, or design, develop, maintain, or operate a system of records. Contractors to provide these employees complete initial privacy training and annual privacy training thereafter on the protection of privacy in accordance with the Privacy Act of 1974 and the handling and safeguard of PII. Requires contractors to maintain records indicating that its employees have completed the requisite training and to provide these records to the contracting officer upon request. Further, prime contractors need to flow down these requirements to all applicable subcontracts. Both rules became effective January 19th. On December 23rd, the Small Business Administration issued a final rule allowing other than small business prime contractors with a subcontracting plan filed with an executive agency to receive credit towards that plan's goals for awards made to small business concerns at any tier under the contract. Another key element is the clarification that the size standards for a particular subcontract must appear in the solicitation for the subcontract. This rule implements portion of the fiscal year 2014 National Defense Authorization Act and was effective January 23rd. The FACT trifecta was completed on January 13th with 2005-95 the Department of Defense, General Services Administration, and National Aeronautics and Space Administration issued five final rules to first raise the simplified acquisition threshold from $300,000 to $750,000 within the United States and from $1 million to $1.5 million outside the United States for special emergency procurement authority. It also prohibits Issued, the rule issued prohibits the use of funds for a contract with an entity that requires employees or subcontractors to sign an internal confidentiality agreement that restricts them from lawfully reporting waste, fraud, or abuse. Also implement Small Business Administration regulatory clarifications regarding the 8A program. 
disallow costs incurred by a contractor in connection with a congressional investigation or inquiry, and establish uniform use of line items in federal procurement. All the rules are currently effective. While December and early January were relatively busy for regulations, you may have noticed fewer new regulations recently. One of the new administration's first acts on January 20th was to immediately freeze new or pending regulations pending administration review. This means three things. Agencies should not send any new regulations to the Federal Register until they're reviewed by someone selected by the President. Second, regulations that have been sent to the Federal Register but not yet published should be withdrawn. And third, regulations that have been published in the Federal Register but have not yet reached an effective date should be postponed for 60 days. Regulations involving critical health, safety, financial, or national security matters are, are exempt, but agencies should still notify the OMB director when an exemption is necessary. Also with regard to regulations, President Trump signed an executive order on January 30th stipulating that in fiscal year 2017, agencies must identify at least two existing regulations to repeal for every one they promote or prom propose or promulgate. They should also offset any new incremental costs for the new regulations with the existing cost of the two being repealed. For regulations finalized in fiscal year 2017 as a whole, the total incremental cost of all new regulations, taking into account the repealed ones, should not be greater than zero. The Office of Management and Budget will provide guidance on implementing this order. And starting in fiscal year 2018, President Trump asked agency heads to report to OMB the estimated incremental costs of new regulations and the cost savings of the ones they will repeal. There were a number of other regulatory developments, but they were either short or specialized enough that we're not going to be able to discuss them in detail here. Also, Every month we create a comprehensive list of all of the regulatory activity from the preceding month. This shows what went into effect and what is still open for comments. You can find our regulatory recap under the Publications tab on the VAO website. That's all for this month. If you're a government agency subscriber to the Virtual Acquisition Office website, you can read more about any of the covered headlines on the same VAO page where you downloaded this podcast. To all our iTunes subscribers, thanks as always for tuning in. If you have any questions on how to gain access to the VAO, please email customercare at asigovt.com. Join us again next time for our VAO team recap of key acquisition developments. Thanks again for joining us today, everyone. Goodbye.